evidence and answers. Should we discuss politics from our pulpits today? How involved should we become? Is there a line that we shouldn't cross? You're tuned to Evidence and Answers with your host, Pat Zucran. Pat is a popular teacher, speaker, and author in the area of Christian apologetics, the defense of the Christian faith. Each week, Pat and his friends provide reasons for faith and hope in Christ. This week, we will continue on with part two of a message Kirby Anderson started the last time we were together entitled, Government and Civic Responsibility, which was taken from our recent Hawaii Apologetics Conference. Each year, Pat hosts this conference, which features some of the premier Christian scholars and apologists from around the nation. Our theme was, Can We Be Good Without God? and featured keynote Christian scholars, Dr. Richard Land and Kirby Anderson. Kirby Anderson provides us with an incredible reminder of how we, as Christians, need to act responsibly when it comes to matters involving our government. Let's join him now as he concludes this wonderful message. There's also ecclesiastical authority. This one's a little bit tougher, but what kind of symbol? I use the idea of the staff, kind of like the bishop's staff, because the church has moral authority. What's the church's role? To speak out against unrighteousness, to call sinners to repentance, to disciple believers, really to be a caretaker of moral views in the world. And that's also a God-ordained institution. One more real quickly. In addition to the fact that God ordained the state and the church, he also ordained what? The family. And I put Ephesians 5 and 6. There the symbol I use is the idea of the rod. Spare the rod, spoil the child, those kind of ideas. And there would be instructional force. Now, a lot of the problems we have happen because one of the institutions gets out of balance or one of the other institutions tries to solve a problem that should be solved within that institution. Last night, Dr. Land went into some detail with the fact that, you know, if the family is weak, the government is weak. Matter of fact, if the family falls apart, oftentimes the government feels like it has to step in and become the surrogate parents. Or else the church has to jump in. Sometimes the state says, we're going to take care of the moral issues of the day, or we're going to exclude moral involvement of the church or Christian organizations. One of the individuals I have on my talk show very often is a man by the name of Tony Evans, and he will tell you that all the outreaches he's been involved with year after year, whether it's to help the poor, whether it's to go into the prisons, are stymied at every level. When Chuck Colson was alive, he oftentimes would come on the program and talk about how prison fellowship is really prevented from doing things that I think would actually reduce the recidivism rate in the prisons. And you can see all sorts of conflicts that come because one institution or another takes too much authority or is outside of its God-ordained authority. But if nothing else, that gives you a little bit of an idea of the structure of government. Okay, political science is over. Let's get back to history for just a few minutes. Because what I wanted to do is remind us from what we talked about last night and continue on, that historically Christians have been very much involved in political and social action. For those of you that were not here last night, I'll do one slide just to catch you up to speed. And that is, I talked about the fact last night that when various political scientists and professors were trying to understand where the ideas that ended up in the Constitution came from, they found, as they looked at the 15,000 different writings during the founding era, that the one document that was quoted most often was what? 
the Bible 34% of the time. And of that, I also pointed out that three-fourths of those references came from the sermons, the reprinted sermons of the day. The preaching of the pastors in the 18th century oftentimes ended up in the writings that ended up becoming important in forming our Constitution. Well, let me move on from there and add a few others that I didn't talk about last night. For example, pastors would also preach an election sermon to guide their congregation. When I lived in Connecticut, I actually saw some churches that still did this, interestingly enough. Don't know that any of them do it anymore. This is a sermon that was given by Daniel Foster, and sitting in the audience was John Hancock and Samuel Adams, right there in the Commonwealth of Massachusetts. And the pastors would preach a sermon, not telling you how to vote, but giving you biblical principles before you would go and vote. Isn't that amazing? Today, I doubt very few pastors have done that before elections, but that's what was part of our history in the 18th and even the early part of the 19th century. Pastors would also give sermons on disasters. This is one of many that I've collected over the years, and in this, the past, they would uh, actually preach a sermon after a disaster, and they said, what is God trying to teach us through this flood or through this tornado or through this fire? And so again, there was a real emphasis in the pulpits of America to address those issues and talk about the relevance of what was happening from a biblical point of view. And I think Dr. Land alluded to last night that if you really look at most of the major social movements in America, pastors were oftentimes on the forefront of preaching on those issues whether it was the abolition movement, the slavery movement, anti-slavery movement, the suffrage movement, the civil rights movement, and on and on and on, you can see that Christians felt that it was really important to address those issues from a biblical point of view. And again, it's part of what I say is our responsibility to be salt and light. But what I think is interesting is you might say, well, we don't seem to be doing that anymore. Well, there's a couple of reasons, but I want to look at one, and that's the legal issue. Back in 1954, Lyndon Johnson actually inserted language in the IRS code saying that a 501c3 nonprofit organization, tax exempt organization, could not endorse or oppose a candidate. Now, why did he do that? Well, you've got to go back to 1948, and I now live in the state of Texas. So I want to tell you a story about Landslide Lyndon. Lyndon Johnson, at this time in 1948, actually uh, was in an election which it looked like he lost. And then they went back and found that he actually won in this runoff between Coke Stevenson and him. He won by 87 votes. But if you go back and look at it, it was probably a very good example of voter fraud. For example, you can go to Alice, Texas, and they had this one particular precinct where everybody in that precinct voted in perfect alphabetical order, and they all had the same handwriting and used the same ink. Do you see voter fraud here? <laughs> of course. That was uh, one of those times when individuals were very convinced that he actually stole that election. But he barely won that election by what? 87 votes. A number of years ago, before he died, William F. Buckley came to Dallas. And I picked him up at the airport, and I brought him to an event where he spoke. And when he stood up, he said, and some of you might remember William F. Buckley was the founding editor of National Review. But William F. Buckley stood before us and said, you know, it really is good to be back here in Texas, because last time I was in Texas, I was in West Texas, and they told me some things I knew and a few things I didn't know. One of them is they told me that my great-uncle how lived in town, which I knew. And they told me that my great uncle 
had been a sheriff in town, which I knew, but then they told me something I didn't know, and that is five years after my great-uncle died, he voted for Lyndon Johnson. As a matter of fact, there's a story that Lyndon Johnson told of himself where he was going through a graveyard and looking for the names on the various gravestones in order to try to determine other names that could be put down here. And at one point, his aide, because this one gravestone had so many things on it, you know, it was kind of rusted and it was over covered with all sorts of moss and everything like that. He said, you know, we're going to have to give up on that. And Lyndon John jokingly said, well, no. He deserves as much right to vote as any of the other dead people here in the cemetery. So, nevertheless, Lyndon Johnson decided that he was in another close election, and the Hunt brothers, who were kind of part of this anti-communist event, wanted to try to defeat him. So he actually inserted into the language that 501c3 organizations could not endorse or oppose a candidate. At the time, it's not evident at all that he was doing that to punish churches. He really wasn't even thinking about churches. He was just thinking about trying to prevent them from hurting his election. But that established sort of a precedent that has really been used, I think sometimes by pastors and other leaders to say, you know, we really just can't ever address any of these issues from the pulpit because after all, we might lose our tax-exempt status. And because there has been some resistance in doing this, the Alliance Defense Fund, now called Alliance Defending Freedom, actually each year now encourages pastors to actually challenge this ruling in September in what is called Pulpit Freedom Sunday. And the bottom line is they've been trying to get pastors to say something from the pulpit that would cause the IRS to challenge them so they would have standing in court to get this overturned. The bottom line is they have yet to have the IRS take the bait. And the point is, pastors have a lot more freedom to address these issues than they ever might have imagined. But it brings a good question up. You know, what are the legal issues? And there are two things for sure as you look at the IRS code that churches cannot do. The first is a church as a body cannot endorse or oppose a candidate. Now, the individual pastor can do so, and I've seen a few pastors over the years that have endorsed candidates even from the pulpit. Wouldn't recommend it, but the bottom line is a church as a body cannot do so, obviously. Nor can the church contribute or raise money for a candidate or even allow them to use the church list. I don't really know anybody that's doing that. I mean, well, maybe Jesse Jackson did one time. But, you know, apart from that, nothing else. But the bottom line is churches are really free to do whatever they would feel would be appropriate within their congregation. They can, for example, register members of the church as voters. They can pass out uh, nonpartisan voter guides. They can invite all the candidates to come and speak or, or simply have them and say, we're going to pray for you. They can speak, obviously, directly to the social and moral issues of the day, abortion, marriage, and many other things. And so the churches really have a tremendous amount of freedom, but it kind of brings us to something that Dr. Land is going to expand on a little bit more because some people say, no, there's a separation of church and state. Well, you know, if you think about that, this idea of separation of church and state is not constitutional, is it? Matter of fact, I've been in uh, law schools, and I used to do this. I'd carry a copy of the Constitution with me, and every once in a while, I'd have somebody bring up the issue of the separation of church and state. And I never had one take me up on the offer, but I said, you know, I've got a Constitution here. Could you show me where that is? They never did take me up on it. But if they were, they would find something very interesting. The word separation, the word church, and the word state are not even found in the Constitution, much less the phrase. So, where does that come from? Well, it obviously comes from a letter that, as you may know, was written by Thomas Jefferson to the Danbury Baptist Association. 
it was, and I will let Dr. Land go into more detail so you can hear him go into all the detail of how it took place, but the bottom line is it was a phrase, it sort of went into obscurity. He really wasn't really trying to do anything more than just simply say that he was not going to proclaim a religious holiday because he felt about building a wall of separation between church and state. Hard to find a Supreme Court precedent that was used on it. He wasn't there when the Constitution was written. All, you know, you can have all sorts of arguments against it. But interesting enough, in 1947, Justice Hugo Black revived that in a case known as Everson versus the Board of Education. Dr. Land will go into more detail, but he argued that this wall should be kept high and impregnable. And again, it stuck around for a while, but eventually the court began to use it. In 1962, they said, well, mandatory prayer is unconstitutional. And I'm not necessarily disagreeing with that ruling, but then they started saying things like Bible study cannot be done. By 1980, you had a case known as Stone versus Graham, which said you can't even post the Ten Commandments on the wall of a school. Can't post the Ten Commandments. At one point they even said, you know, we just don't think that should be done because students might be inclined to read the Ten Commandments, they might be inclined to believe the Ten Commandments, they might be inclined to act on the Ten Commandments, which I thought was a pretty good idea, but nevertheless they did not think so. And then we've had all these cases about Christmas creches and nativity scenes and whether or not you could have a prayer before baccalaureate and all goes back to this. As a matter of fact, I live in the state of Texas now and we had a case where they said that students could not have a prayer over the loudspeaker before a high school football game in the state of Texas. Wanted to have a separation of player and prayer. And the argument of the Supreme Court was that a Texas high school football game is not a religious activity. They've never been to a Texas high school football game, have they? <laughs> it's a very significant religious activity for some. But nevertheless, we'll leave Dr. Land to address that later. But I think when you go back, really only talking about the First Amendment, and you can see, even by the history of the First Amendment, that it was simply not intended to prevent a religious expression. I mean, when it was first written, it said, the civil rights of none shall be abridged on account of religious belief or worship, nor shall any national religion be established, nor shall the full and equal rights of conscience be in any manner or any pretext infringed. That was really long, so they ended up with what we now know today, as Congress shall make no law respecting an establishment of religion or prohibiting the free exercise thereof. That's all it is. And so I think we need to recognize that I think God is really challenging us today to speak as the church to the moral issues. It's not asking the church to be a political entity, but it is asking the church to address the moral issues, as it always has. What are some of those issues? How about abortion? We talked about that last night, didn't we? Getting up to almost 60 million aborted babies. Does the church have something to say about that? I think obviously it does. How about this issue of church-state? I think the real battles are not going to be necessarily these big prayer cases or Christmas crush cases. They're going to be zoning cases where are you going to be allowed to have a parking lot? Are you going to be allowed to have a Christian school? Are you going to have to get a special use permit every time you want to do something? Those are going to be issues that we in the church are going to have to address very much in the 21st century. What about poverty? Does the church have something to say about that? I'm convinced that a lot of the problems for the poor have nothing to do with economics, which is really all this government can do. But the church can address these issues and begin to address the social and cultural issues. We have had a war on poverty for 50 years. And in round numbers, we've spent about a half a billion dollars every single year, almost 25 
trillion dollars? Is that amazing? You know, uh, this is just amazing the amount of money that has been spent. And we still have a poverty rate like it is today. Can the church speak to those issues? Well, I think it should. Same-sex marriage, I don't need to tell people in Hawaii how that one has been a controversial issue even in the legislature. Even some of the medical issues, stem cell research, cloning, never has the government and never have the society more needed the voice of the church as we get into issues like cloning and transhumanism and robotics and privacy and all sorts of issues and never have we oftentimes been so silent about some of those issues. So finally, just before we break it up for a time of looking at uh, some of these other specific issues, how have we done in terms of the stewardship of the vote? You can see that on the handout. And I thought I'd look back on some of the close elections. Certainly one of the closest elections in American history happened when? In 2000. There's a look at the map of what it looked like, but let's just remind ourselves that the presidential election was decided by 527 votes in the state of Florida. Don't tell me one vote doesn't matter. 527 votes in Florida made the difference. But here's something else. You could change 5,381 votes in four states, and it could have resulted in a 269-269 tie. That's how close it was. The Senate elections were a 50-50 tie until one senator in Vermont decided he was independent, but up, and then it was a 50-49-1, but it was a 50-50 tie. And even in the House of Representatives that year, a collective shift of 5,400, almost 5,500 votes in five districts would have put the Democrats in charge and Richard Gephardt would have been Speaker of the House. That's a pretty close election. Four years later, it was still pretty close. There's the map again. Remember the presidential election was pretty much decided in the state of Ohio. George Bush won the state's 20 electoral votes by 50.8% of the vote. That was a time when a lot of these marriage protection amendments were passed as well. So I think you can begin to see, just look at those two, and of course we can look at others, but in the interest of time, I just picked those two because they're close enough. It illustrates something else. How did Christians do in those votes? Well, if you accept George Barna's definition of a born-again Christian, and that is an individual who's had a born-again experience in their life, in the past, it's still meaningful to them today, and they believe they're saved by grace. If you assume that definition you would conclude that we had about 59 million born-again Christian voters. 15 million voted in 2000, 19 million voted in 2004. You say, where are all the others? You can see the 24 million were not even registered to vote. Pretty bad stewardship, and that's something we need to think about in the future. This one came just this last week. You know, what do we have in terms of voter knowledge? Just one example I wanted to use. That is, the Fusion's massive millennial poll just came out, found that 77% of the millennial generation, those born pretty much between 1980 and 2000, but uh, a little bit more because they added uh, those between ages 18 and 34, could not name one senator in his or her home state. Isn't that amazing? But interesting enough, they found that almost that same percentage said that they plan to vote in the next election. So we need to do some voter education, don't we? And if you don't think that elections are close, try these two on for size. I have had a kind of a history of collecting all sorts of close elections. And when I was on a number of years ago with Moody Broadcasting Network, one of the individuals I oftentimes did interviews with was a woman by the name of Penny Poland. She was an Illinois state representative. And in one particular election, 
she actually was declared to have a tie election. Now, there's some voter irregularities, state of Illinois, okay? But they finally concluded that the best thing was to simply say that it was a tie election. And so Judge Francis Barth concluded that because it was a tie election, they just simply flipped a coin and she lost. Isn't that amazing? Here's the rest of the story. That week when Penny came back to church, she ran into more than three dozen people in her church that said, Oh, Penny, if I knew it was going to be that close, I would have voted last Tuesday. You know, I was at the office a little bit late. I came home. I decided that it wasn't that important. I didn't vote. Or I was out of town. I didn't get an absentee vote. If just one of those individuals in her church had voted for her, she'd still be serving today in Springfield, Illinois. Well, my all-time favorite is William Crawford and Jean Miller in Ohio. This one was the closest election in American history. It was an absolute tie, like 54-89 to 54-89. And so, again, it was one of those situations. But here's the rest of the story. William Crawford, he found out that he had two sons, neither of who voted in that election. One son lived at home with him. The other son lived just down the street. Wouldn't you like to have been there during Thanksgiving? Don't tell me that it isn't important to cast our votes. We're out of time here, but I certainly just want to end with this idea of salt and light. Certainly the scriptures talk about the fact that we should be the salt of the earth and the light of the world. And since we're going to get into our sessions here, let me just talk about some of the resources, and then we'll begin to adjourn for the breakout sessions. The first is, is that if you last night or even today said you would like to get the material that you've seen on the screen, I've already sent to Pat Zucherin the PDFs of all three of my presentations. So you can just contact him at Evidence and Answers, or I'll be walking around today with a flash drive. So if any of you have a laptop computer, I'll just load it in there. If you don't even want to contact Pat and you want to get it right now, I'll be glad to give it to you. Now, some of you are teachers or professors. If you go to our website, probe.org, we have almost 100 PowerPoint presentations. And most of the presentations I've given are on there, but they're not exactly the same. I make changes all the time. But if you wanted to have those, they're free of charge. We also have the radio transcripts. If last night you said, I want to get all the material you have, but I want to see the end notes, we always have end notes on our radio transcripts, and it's all free. So the PowerPoints are free, the podcasts are free, the transcripts are free. You like that? And just simply go to probe.org. And then I do a daily commentary. Dr. Land and I both do commentaries, and my commentary is with Point of View. And if you want to go to pointofview.net, that's a talk show where I'm on 340 different radio stations, about 42 different states. They just did an Arbitron evaluation the other day and concluded that uh, the, I have a cumulative audience of 1.44 million every week that listen to that. But if you would like to get those commentaries, they're free of charge. The podcasts are free. If you'd like to hear, for example, interviews I've done with Joel Rosenberg or Jim Dobson or uh, Mike Huckabee or anybody I've done just in the last couple of weeks, you can download those and they're all free of charge as well. Pretty good. And again, my book, uh, Christian Ethics in Plain Language, has quite a bit on government. And if you would like to know a little bit more about some of those issues, you can simply go to probe.org. Well, did you learn something? Thank you for joining us here on Evidence and Answers Radio Broadcast. This concludes our study entitled Government and Civic Responsibility, taught by Kirby Anderson of Probe Ministries. If you found this broadcast to be a blessing, please consider partnering with us. Evidence and Answers relies on the generous donations from you, our listeners. 
log on to our website at evidenceandanswers.org. For the opportunity to donate and keep us on the air, click on that Donate button on side of our homepage. That's it for now, but join us once again for more Evidence and Answers. <laughs>